1: Hello and welcome to Alpha Chatterbox, the long-form business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Isabella Kaminska. A few weeks ago at the FT's Festival of Finance in London, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Gavin Davies from Fulcrum Asset Management and Tyler Cowan from George Mason University to dig into the issue of the so-called productivity puzzle. This, generally speaking, is the conundrum over why, despite all the innovation around us, the so-called productivity statistics are not going up in the economy. We discussed a number of options, including the idea that there isn't enough investment, that we maybe are mismeasuring the data, or even that innovation itself has stalled. So without further ado, here's the conversation. Enjoy. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. It's so exciting when you uh, are witness to two entities who know each other over the internet, but have never met. And then they're like, oh, hi. Um, Oh, true. We've actually only ever met virtually. So here we are in body and soul and form. We are talking about the productivity puzzle. um, And it's not going to be boring. It's going to be super exciting. And it's not going to be at all about Brexit. Or maybe it will. Who's to... Who's to say? Um, Anyway, so I thought I would start off by asking you both, when did you become aware of this thing called the productivity puzzle? When was it that it actually struck you as an important phenomenon that was happening, Gavin and then Tyler? I started writing
2: about it about only three years ago, so I guess not very long ago. But it had another incarnation in the 1990s. So I was very aware of it in the 1990s when in the US, um, Alan Greenspan and many others thought that the consumer price index was being overstated and that in reality consumer prices were lower because productivity was higher uh, and um, and output was was correspondingly being mismeasured. And in those days, um, a commission in the United States agreed broadly with that theme and said that the CPI was being mismeasured. And then there were some changes to the way that um, IT was measured in the national accounts. It then went kind of quiet for a decade or so, and I only really became aware that it was becoming a really big deal two or three years after the crash. And since then... I think it's become a really central issue. Personally, I don't know whether I would call it so much a a puzzle. I I think there are puzzling elements to it, and I think there are unknown elements to it, but I think we've kind of explained a lot of it uh, by now. So it's a productivity event, in my mind, which is really serious and dangerous for the world economy, more than it is a puzzle, I think.
1: That's very interesting. Um, And obviously, when you refer to the last time, would that um, fit in with that time when Robert Solow obviously famously said you can see the computer age everywhere but in the productivity statistics? Yeah,
2: it was in between, actually. Well, Solow said that, I guess, in the late 80s, didn't he? Sometime? Early 90s. Early 90s. Um, So by then, it was already becoming a question. Why are we seeing all of this IT transformation that isn't showing in the productivity numbers and the output numbers, therefore. Uh, And Solo said that, you know, 30 years ago nearly. Um, It became mainstream for the Fed, though, I think, in about 1996-7, when there was a big debate about whether price inflation was being mismeasured. And, of course, we're having that debate to some extent now, but the Fed doesn't appear at all convinced that there is much mismeasurement of the price index, there having been many changes to the way that the statisticians measure inflation. So this time, I think we've got a much more sceptical Fed than we had in the mid-1990s.
1: So, Tyler, same question to you. When did you start to notice this thing called the productivity puzzle, or not uh, productivity event, um, this time around? When when did it become... Oh, has it never gone away since, since those eight 90s days
3: the nineteen nineties I had a remarkably optimistic vision of the future I thought US productivity growth would average three percent until I would pass away and real wages for most income classes would go up by at least two percent a year on average I got very worried in 2009 when there was the financial crisis I saw that virtually all sectors of the American economy had overextended themselves and yes it was correct to blame banks and finance for many things But I also felt that criticism was a bit superficial, that to some extent finance was the messenger. We as a society had become too complacent. We had all made plans as if we were still growing at 3%. We thought the mid-90s were still on. And in fact, we had entered a new regime, probably starting around year 2000, when we were growing at only 1%. And that discrepancy between the expectation and the reality, the 3% and the 1%, That, to me, is what drove the financial crisis and the Great Recession. And we're still in it. The only difference is that finally our expectations are adjusting downwards. So maybe now we're expecting about 1%. But that's not too much fun either because there's yet another kind of negative shock that comes when you realize what a mess you're in. And here we are in 2016, and now it's starting to infect voters.
1: So um, before we get into the details, I just thought we'd... um unpack some of the terms that we're using because uh, the audience is very uh, diverse, You know, everything from economists to students. So I just thought, because when I read the FTE, um, Martin Wolf is always going on about this uh, concept called to- total factor productivity. I would like to know in as... Um, laypersons uh, a way of saying it, what, what are we talking about here? What is total factor productivity? How do you even measure productivity and what are the uh, indicators we're looking for to uh, understand what's going on? Gavin.
2: Okay, well, total factor productivity is the amount of output produced by a given combination of labour and capital inputs. So, it's the, the benefit every year from getting better at what we do, smarter, combining capital and labour better, working more cleverly, rather than inputting more labour or inputting more machines. It's, that, it's the difference between <clears throat> the measured impact of more labour and more machines, which is an input of factors of production, And output. The difference between those two things is total factor productivity.
1: Tyler, if I am um, in my day-to-day job, um, watching cats on the internet, operating on Slack, uh, having messages with my family on WhatsApp, and writing stories, am I being more productive?
3: What most people actually care about is living standards, right? And until a few years ago, there was still a large group of people saying, the numbers are all wrong, living standards Are still going up for most people. That view is dying out more and more. But think of there as being three ways living standards can go up. You work harder, or you have more people. You apply more capital, or you have new ideas. Multi-factor productivity is an attempt to measure the new ideas. Now, they are useful categories for a lot of questions, but I think more and more the idea that those three things, more labor, more capital, more new ideas, they're so closely interconnected the notion of just looking at living standards, I think, has actually become more important. So when you're on the internet looking at your cat videos, writing about Bitcoin, writing about uh, you know Henry VIII and the earlier Reformation of Brexit and so on, I think we're in a world where people's happiness, at least if you're very interested in information, has never been higher. But when you look at the revenue dimension, jobs, GDP tax intake, our ability to build and finance projects, that's doing miserably. So we're seeing somewhat of a split, especially for higher earners, between revenue and happiness. For people I call infivores who love information, our happiness is doing fine. But at the end of the day, you can't pay the bills with your happiness, and our revenue is doing pretty poorly.
1: So... um Certainly something is happening because revenue matters, I presume. So we, we can be all very happy watching our cats on the video, but at the end, uh, on, on the internet. But at the end of the day, we need to eat and we need to have um, material things. So um, at what point does this balance between happiness and real consumption of, of, of real materials and our, our accessibility to that sort of stuff... Um, bec- begin to factor in in this productivity debate, like where is, where, where would you say the balance uh, is at the moment and, and are we in some way being compromised on, on one of those fronts?
3: I think in some ways, both in my country and in yours, we've become a bit too complacent or even self-righteous. So in both of our countries, people are far more tolerant than 20 or probably even 10 years ago. And this is a very, very good thing. It makes many people more happy. There aren't actually many losers in a significant way. But I think we've started using this as a kind of substitute for economic growth, as a way of feeling good about ourselves. Like how far we've come and how moral we are and what good people we are. This is to some extent infected higher education. And I think the actual reality is at the end of the day, for all the wonderful things about tolerance, you need to have a hard-nosed attitude about plain, flat-out, simple economic growth, having enough vision and belief in your society to sustain grand, wonderful projects. And I see both of our countries actually running away from that. So I I think, Isabella, that
2: one point at which it becomes a problem that we might have welfare benefits from IT which are not being turned into revenue, in Tyler's words, is if we start taking on commitments that are measured in money and require monetary payments, which then become unsustainable because the revenue side of GDP isn't growing to cover those commitments. And the two most obvious places to look are public and private debt. So public debt is a commitment to repay money measured in dollars or in pounds over a flow of years. And you can't pay that money back by saying, well, people are a lot happier looking at cat videos. Doesn't, it doesn't actually pay down that debt. And For the record, s-
1: I actually prefer dogs. But-
2: <laughs> <laughs> and similarly, in, in, in the household sector, I mean, we know in the, 19, in the early part of this century, uh, in the 2000s, certainly in America and the UK, the household sector took on massive commitments to repay mortgages assuming that the monetary value of their incomes would continue to grow at some rate that had been driven by previous growth rates previous productivity growth rates and as tyler hinted earlier when the productivity slowdown occurred that flow of income was no longer available and as we may be seeing here with the shock we're having here now Once you have reduced the expected flow of household income, you have to curtail a lot of your expenditure to make your previous level of debt service feasible.
1: I can't pay my mortgage in Facebook likes, for example. No,
2: you can't. So although I actually, I think I may be a little bit more, I don't know, I think I may be a bit more optimistic than Tyler is about welfare that is not being measured in the national accounts I think that exists and we might come on to how we could think about that later I still worry that a lot of monetary obligations are not going to be payable uh, unless we can monetize our welfare
1: you you reference the measurement stuff because really whenever I talk to economists or analysts there's two uh, explanations I'm given for this productivity uh, stagnation. One is this, um, and you hear this very much in the tech space, this idea that new types of um, uh, I don't know, value are not being measured correctly by the stats office. How, vi- how, how um, fair is that an argument? Because the other one is uh, focused on investment, so we'll come to that later. So, Tyler, d- is there a mismeasurement in the GDP or in the stat- statistics Um, of, of, of the tech stuff that we're consuming.
3: Most of the value of the internet is captured in GDP. So it could be you love looking at Facebook, but that means you're willing to pay more to buy a smartphone, have a broadband connection, buy an iPad, whatever you do. That's picked up in GDP. Imagine you went to an Indian restaurant and they had a buffet, and you grabbed some tandoori chicken, and you said, oh, this tandoori chicken, it's not in GDP. Right? That's wrong. If the tandoori chicken is good, you're willing to pay more for the buffet. What you see in the mid-90s when we first start getting email and some very basic IT functions is that then the consumer surplus was huge and output went up. It was reflected in the form of high productivity in many sectors of the economy. And today that is not what we see. If you redo all of the productivity calculations and take account of free goods, what ends up happening is you have a lot of businesses which use currently free inputs like Google Maps, like pizza delivery. They use Google Maps. If you were to value that at price, it actually means the pizza delivery sector is less productive than we're measuring. You net all of that out. And again, the unmeasured component of gains from the Internet for most people, businesses, sectors, it's simply not as large as many people claim. Techies are wrong. The techies are wrong.
1: You heard it here first. Okay, Gavin, what's your view? Yeah,
2: so I'm not as I'm not as anti techy as uh, as Tyler is on this. I mean, there the evidence on this has actually become a little bit different on the U.S. side of the Atlantic and on the U.K. side of the Atlantic. We've recently had a whole load of studies on this on on both sides of the Atlantic. To what extent uh, is GDP being mismeasured because? we're getting our price indices wrong or because we're just simply not uh, taking account of stuff that isn't in the market at all. So the use of Wikipedia is always my favourite one. As far as I'm aware, we don't. nobody here pays for Wikipedia. Does that mean it should be valued at zero? It seems to me ridiculous. It's, it's added more information content to the world than any invention ever before in the history of the world, probably. So it seems to be bonkers. But so in, in the UK, on the UK side of the Atlantic, Charlie Bean recently did a study for the National Statistical Office about whether GDP was being undervalued. And he was quite open-minded to that possibility. In fact, in parts of that chapter, he said that the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, may be being overstated by up to 1% per annum as a result of mismeasurement issues. In the US, though, I think Tyler has reflected the consensus. In the US, we had the economic report of the president recently. We've had John Fernald at the San Francisco Fed with his colleagues published in Brookings. And they're pretty unequivocally in favour of what Tyler just said. So, for me, I, I think the jury's a bit out on this. And I wish our statistical agencies would really take this issue seriously and try to get to the bottom of it because it isn't 100% agreement on one side or the other.
1: What do you think of Gavin's
3: point? I agree mostly. I would just point out there's a lot of other measures of productivity you can look at, like just count the number of startups. Contrary to what you read, that has fallen every decade since the 1980s. The number of unicorns is down. If you look at labor supply behavior, again, this is America, not the UK, it's very consistent with the pattern of stagnant living standards, not rising living standards. If you look at a simple question, how many Mexicans want to live in the United States rather than Mexico, it suggests life in America is not becoming 3% more wonderful every year. In fact, there's a net flow of Mexicans back to Mexico. Good for Mexico.
1: Does Donald Trump know?
3: If he does, he doesn't let on. (laughs)
1: <laughs> sorry, but, sorry to interrupt. Keep but going. But
3: some of those issues may be distributional
2: issues. I mean, I think, I think we, there are there are two things perhaps going on at the same time. One is we're having increasing difficulty measuring, I would say, welfare because many of our daily activities are not they're not being marketised by exchanges and therefore they're not being measured by GDP. Secondly, and differently, we may be seeing a big change in the distribution of both income and welfare. So I think we need to try and keep those two forces separate in
3: our thinking.
1: I interrupted on your Mexico point. It was.
3: I just think in general, when you look at measures of quantities, if you look even at political behavior, it seems more consistent with the vision of a Western world and also Japan which is slowing down in terms of its productivity growth and economic growth. When you try to paint the whole picture and put all of the numbers together, it's very hard for me to sustain the the very optimistic view. I think for the world as a whole, the very optimistic view is highly defensible. But for countries on the technological frontier, for all the plaudits Silicon Valley gets, and actually mostly deserves... There are just too many other sectors which are a mess. Service sector productivity at least seems to measure at zero. Healthcare and education, we don't actually know how to measure their productivity. Let me just ask you, is that good news or bad news? I think it's bad news. And those sectors, as a share of the economy, of course, are growing and will continue to grow. That, to me, is a huge prima facie argument that whatever you think of the numbers we've got, once you take into account that government consumption, education, healthcare, bundled together – are mostly growing, and they're somewhat dysfunctional sectors, that is a big reason why we should be more pessimistic.
2: But, Tyler, let, let's take a, an earlier example, the arrival of antibiotics, right? Became widespread in the 1950s. Stuff we, Diseases we used to routinely die of after umpteen years of extraordinary, you know, illness suddenly disappeared. That Was that picked up in the... I, you know, I, would, I don't think that would have been picked up in the productivity figures, but it was an absolutely enormous enhancement to human welfare, right? Maybe the same thing's happening now with lots of the new developments we're seeing, the new treatments we're seeing in the medical space that won't be picked up in the productivity figures, but nevertheless, human beings are hugely enhanced by them.
3: That's a great example, but it makes me more pessimistic. You mentioned antibiotics. A lot of them are losing their potency as we speak. Up until the last year, if you look at life expectancy, again, this is US, it's going up at a constant rate, really for decades on average. The moving average is pretty constant. So it hasn't been getting better. You know, we've had vaccines and clean water. That was early 20th century. In some ways, we've matched that. We haven't exceeded it. So that is at best a draw, but we are spending more and more to produce the same proportional increase in health care outcomes. And then finally, this last year is the first year in recorded history where the U.S. has a lot of counties where life expectancy actually has gone down. And then if you look at northern England, social indicators, life expectancy, northern England, parts of Scotland are at times now worse than in much of Latin America and some parts of Africa. So it's not just a story of untrammeled progress in those areas. No,
2: Tyler, but again, distribution... Well, two things. America may well have a dysfunctional and unfair health system, right, where a large proportion of not very well-off people don't have access to good health care. That's not telling me what's happening to potential welfare for the population as a whole. So I'm not convinced by that.
3: They're not dying from bad health care. And again, if you look at Northern England or Scotland, where there's the NHS, you see actually worse outcomes. And people in America of English, Irish, Scottish background have higher life expectancy than those do in England, Ireland, or Scotland. Swedish-Americans have higher life expectancy than Swedes. Japanese-Americans have higher life expectancy than Japanese in Japan. So it can't be about the U.S. healthcare system. And if we look at why the death rate is up in the United States, it doesn't seem to be about healthcare institutions... Over that last year, we covered 11 million more Americans and life expectancy is going down. It's something about lifestyle, diabetes, suicide, heroin, opiates, and five other problems. One
2: more, please. Please Okay, so I've got a direct challenge to you, Professor Coward. Absolutely. Okay, direct challenge. You have a choice. You can have the hospital healthcare drugs available in 1970. For yourself, sure. or you can have those that are available today. Which do you
3: choose? Well, at which prices is the question. But let me tell you, if you look <laughs> at life expectancy for American Amish, who use very little health care, American Amish, it is actually higher than for me. So it's not mostly about health care. It's diet, exercise, and how you take care of yourself. Agreed. So,
2: you're choosing the 1970 hospital system and drugs and...
3: It depends how much operations
2: money I are ta- Really? I'll take the cash. <laughs> you, you will until you're feeling ill, Tyler. When you start feeling ill, there'll be no amount of cash that you wouldn't pay for today's health system. But
1: what I'm hearing, as a, as a completely uninformed spectator here, is that um, there's a... Pr- you're kind of making the case that for every good, there's a kind of equal and equivalent ungood. And with with medical services, uh, perhaps that is very true. Like, we see this, the emergence of the bug. So, like, for me, that question... Perhaps in the 70s, I was less likely to die from MMR or some sort of superbug. So there are other sort of factors in play all the time. But um, when we're talking about comparatives, it's impossible not to mention Robert Gordon's book here because he's obviously come out with this big theory that uh, innovation is stagnating just across the world. Um, And he likes to sort of present this as... um, as a simple choice between the technologies of today versus the technologies that came into the market uh, in the last century. So a good one is, would you rather have an iPhone um, or indoor plumbing? Like, you, you have to have one or the other. And, um, and the answer usually is, well, I'd rather have the indoor plumbing in terms of, like, how big an influence it is on my life. So is there... Do you think that's a fair argument, Tyler, but the new innovations we're seeing, they're just not as impactful on our quality of life um, on a marginal basis as those big inventions back in the day.
3: If it's an iPad rather than an iPhone, I'll take the iPad for sure. But look, I think essentially Gordon is correct. My grandmother was born in 1905 when the world was a mess. No one finished high school, no radio, antibiotics, vaccines, no clean water, flush toilets, electricity, maybe, but probably not. By the time she's 50... 1955, America's a pretty well-developed country, chicken in every pot, car in every garage, and so on. I'm born in 1962, by the time I'm 50, well, I've got that iPad and iPhone, that's wonderful. But most other things, they're not that different. I can watch a TV show from the 60s or 70s and how things work, it looks pretty much the same. They are not overall comparable, but Bob Gordon does overrate the flesh toilet and underrate the iPad. <laughs>
2: Tyler's too um, self-effacing to point out that he pointed this out before Robert Gordon did um, in about 2010 or 11, didn't you, Tyler, with a book called The Age of Stagnation or something like that. Anyway, so he pointed it out first. I'm not too surprised to hear he's (laughs) broadly agreeing with this newcomer theory that came after us. In terms of Robert Gordon, I enormously have respected him all my life. I think he's an incredible macroeconomist. I think he tries to measure stuff that most people have had a hard time measuring, and he's done a lot of that in his career. This idea, though, that you can predict whether innovation has stopped doesn't really convince me. I mean, innovation is, by definition, new and unpredictable. How do we know whether it's stopped?
1: Well, I mean, um, I'm going to propose um, one example, which I heard actually somebody else make. Jaron Lanier made this. Um, we can see it maybe in music. So if you look back at the you know, centuries, every period has a really definable uh, musical feel to it. We can think of the music of the 60s, and it's very different to the music of the 70s. There's a, there's a real switch, right? And if you think of music as a factor of innovation in a society, um, I would argue that today's music is undefinable, uh, like it's completely um, indistinguishable to the last decade's music.
2: You're not, a, you're not a Taylor Swift fan, Isabella. That's. that's I would argue that Taylor I, Swift's I music would have been as
1: um, acceptable, as, like <laughs> the noughties as much as this decade. Look, There's no definable. There, look, there,
2: there are, there are clearly, there are phases of rapid cultural change and then there are phases of not such rapid cultural change. But I don't think you, you should pick one ex- one cultural example to suggest that things are not changing very much in many fields. I mean, we can just look around us and see today the first accident, fatal accident, in a car being driven by a computer. Right. I mean, that's a sad event, but it shows there's a big leap happening in the way that we drive vehicles. The power that the vehicles use to move their wheels is fundamentally going to change over the next several years. You go to a manufacturing factory in America or Britain today, you don't see any people. You know, people are talking as if robots are coming in the manufacturing sector. They've already removed people from the shop floor altogether. I, th- I think in biotech there is likely to be a very, very major revolution very soon. So I can think of a whole load of things happening, and I can also say one more thing, which is this. A lot of the innovations of the past, the arrival of electricity or power on a factory floor or whatever, have taken decades to influence the productivity figures. It didn't all happen in 1860. It happened in the 1920s and the 1940s. It may well be that the ability to produce total factor productivity from the Internet is only in its very
3: early stages.
1: Tyler, what do you think?
3: The data on music are very interesting. Right now, we're very close to being on the verge of having dead musicians earn more in royalties than living musicians for the first time ever. But that said, I'd like to stress how much I agree with Gavin's broader point. Bob Gordon has said innovation is over. I think that's completely wrong. I think it has paused for a few decades. I think we're going to see a remarkable burst of plenty and innovation in the biosciences, in smart software, in the internet of things, in artificial intelligence. Not next year. It's not going to help us balance our budgets in the next 10 years. But over the course of the next 30, 40, 50 years, we'll be amazed how much has happened. Because right now, two things. One, there's more science than ever before. And two, if you're a genius born wherever in the world, your chance of being able to contribute to humanity is much higher today than it ever has been before. Now, that doesn't mean productivity growth is high right now. It's not. But I'm actually pretty optimistic about the medium to long-term future. And the people who say they're convinced all innovation is over... Even if it were true, you could never, ever, ever know that. It's highly unlikely, in my opinion. It's just that we're in the bad part of the pause, circa 2016.
1: So, um, this is a good time to bring in investment, because Andrew Smithers makes the argument that really, when you look at the productivity stagnation, it's... Clearly, very correlated to the slowdown in, in co- corporate investment. Would you agree with that point? And yeah. why is there this uh, slowdown in, in investment in that case?
2: Well, I looked uh, in preparing for, for meeting Tyler because I knew he knew more about this than me, so I better I better do some homework. Um, I went and looked back at the the breakdown of the productiv- of productivity into his three prime causes, more labour and more education, more machines and better ideas. Those three causes. And I looked at the numbers for the US 30 years ago and the numbers now, and all of them have deteriorated. So the labour force has slowed, education is improving less rapidly, ideas seem to be spreading less rapidly, or we seem to be having less benefit from that. And Big time, we are investing less in our capital stock as measured in the national accounts. So all of them have been responsible, including investment. And certainly since 2008, coming back into the UK, there is no doubt that very low levels, relatively, of business investment have given Labour... Less new machines to work with than has been the case in the past, and that's been a sizable sizable reason why we've had this productivity slowdown
1: so it's, it's to what degree is it about incentives because your your book average is over is is very much about incentives and bonus and and bonus cultures and 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 the sort of the segregation between um, you know we're, there's going to be more uh, wealthy people but there's also going to be a lot lot more poor people because everything's going kind of getting bifurcated.
3: As an economist, I do think incentives are very important, but I don't think they explain the productivity slowdown. I think ultimately it's been a psychological and sociological phenomenon that the 1960s and 1970s were actually a remarkably volatile and indeed violent time, although we did some remarkable things. Imagine putting a man on the moon in seven years. We can't fix a bridge in seven years today. It's not that technologies are worse. The mentality was fundamentally different But a lot of people didn't like living in that world. It was somewhat brutish, and actually pretty volatile, and much worse for many people than what we have today. So a large percentage of Americans and people in other countries, they decided to dig in, and they moved to a more static way of viewing the world. I think that's the fundamental cause behind the productivity slowdown. And the fundamental cure is probably going to be very painful. It will involve a lot of volatility along the way, like we've been seeing in this year, uh, the sad reality is getting out of the productivity slowdown and having a very bumpy ride. Those are also two sides of the same coin.
1: So you don't think um, short-termism in corporate, like in, in the corporation um, of today, is a problem at all? That.
3: No, I don't think it's a problem at all. There's plenty of finance papers that look at corporations when they take longer-term decisions, they announce new R&D, what happens to their share price, what happens to their long-term prospects. It's very hard to correlate that with significant final impacts. So I don't think it's about short-termism. I know we could sit around this room and come up with 70 different policies for my country and yours that we would all disagree with. Uh, Those probably are bad policies, but I don't think it's about that either. I think sometimes you get to thresholds where it's very hard to break through. Cars have not gotten much, much better in really quite a while. They will with driverless cars. Take a sofa. Take this chair. How much more comfortable can this chair get? It's very hard, right? A chair 20 years ago was as good as this chair. Now, someday this will be a biometric chair. It'll scan me and tell me when I need to take a pill or go to the doctor. But between now and then is a lot of years. So the idea of thresholds and then this change in our basic psychological mentality, we're more static, we're more nimby, we're more dig in, we're more you can't build too much in London, it's ugly, I don't like it. We're more blocking coalitions, and it's a general mentality above and beyond any particular policy or political point of view.
2: But Isabella, if we had Larry Summers here, uh, or, you know...
1: Perhaps next year.
2: Or a new a new Keynesian economist of the summer's variety, he would say that the capital stock is being enhanced at a slower pace than before because of a lack of final demand in the in the economy. He'd also point out that we're doing less investing in real stuff that you can touch, and we're doing more investing in digital stuff, which is cheaper and easier to put in place, etc. Um, But he would make the point, and I think that we can't overlook this, that a very prolonged downturn in demand has produced a response from the corporate sector, which is quite predictable, putting less money into fixed investment, and that is now kicking back into a problem with supply as well. So what he would say is that this is becoming reinforcing where we're we're getting trapped into a lower equilibrium for the level of output by having a demand deficiency for a long period of time.
1: It's a vicious circle, essentially.
2: Yeah, I'd say it's, self-re- yeah, it is. it's self-reinforcing, I think.
3: But th- This I don't agree with at all, if I may just say. If you take the United States and the United Kingdom, we're both very close to full employment, as it would be defined in our time. So there's not right now a lack of demand. And I know a lot of people who say, oh, once the crisis is over, once we've returned to wherever, you know, productivity will come back. Uh, It really hasn't happened. Actually, it's gotten worse. Per-hour productivity has fallen through the floor. But the most important thing is, especially for the U.S., the productivity crisis starts in 2000. By longer-term measures, it starts in 1973. And those are not times when demand was fundamentally a problem. There yeah. may be a knock-on effect, but it cannot be the main story. Tyler, completely, I completely
2: agree, agree with that. I mean, A, it has been a very long-term phenomenon. B, it has been a phenomenon that has impacted pretty much all economies. C, it's impacted sectors, whether they use IT or whether they don't use IT. So all of those pieces of evidence completely agree with you about the long term. But I do, I must say, I do think <coughs> that while, while we are at full employment or near full employment in the UK and the US, we may be at full employment with a lower level of output because we have a lower capital stock than we might have had.
1: That's fascinating. I think at this point, I'd like to invite some questions from the floor. Does anyone have any questions? Hands up, please.
0: Hi there. Thank you. Very interesting. I'd like to tie a few of these things together with the question that I've recently come upon this intriguing hypothesis that the reason the Industrial Revolution kicked off in the UK rather than China was because wages were higher in the UK at the time. Now, do you view there being a causal relationship between wages and productivity either way?
3: Uh, I think it's only a minor factor for the Industrial Revolution that wages were higher in in what was then England. I think more important was simply uh, the British understood how to use coal after some point. Uh, They had more political stability, it was an island, and they had a freer economy. But most of all, coal combined with institutions, a more experimental base for science, and a kind of ideology mixed in with religion and the notion of, you know, free England, free Britain, that could expand, uh, not always in good ways, that the Chinese did not have, much more inward-looking. China was never as a whole stable the way England was. I would take those to be the main causes.
2: So... In the long run, I mean, the first, one of the first things you learn at, um, in a macroeconomics class is that the long-run real wage is determined by the productivity level, right? So I think there's almost no doubt that it works in that direction. Does it work the other way around as well? I mean, I used to think, no, not really. But lately we've had low wages for a long period of time nominal and real the profit share has been high have companies been incentivized to hire cheaper labor more than they used to and invest less in capital equipment possibly
1: so just i'd love to know do you think that feeds into the globalization picture as well or not at all
2: well, I think, the low wage, I think the low wages I do attribute to globalisation because, I mean, you know, one of the two biggest shocks we've seen in the last two decades is the arrival of hundreds of millions of new workers into the labour force, and I think that has impacted wages in the West. That may have had a knock-on effect. I mean, it's definitely increased the profit share, It may have had a knock-on effect into a substitution of labour for capital in Western economies, which would have depressed the productivity growth rate.
1: So we need more robots and less cheap labour? Is that a fair...? Well, I think
2: one of the things that I've noticed happening lately is whereas we all used to say very straightforwardly and easily, free trade's a great idea, why don't we have more of it, Econ- macroeconomists and trade economists have become more worried about that simple solution. And one of the reasons, I think, is that the impact on the labour market and wages in the West is beginning to look longer lasting and more intractable than we thought a few couple of decades ago.
3: And th- this is a key point for the UK in particular. As you probably know, we've been talking about rates of growth, but in terms of levels, output per person in the UK is about 30% below France and Germany, it's even below Italy, it's well below Ireland, and you can't account for most of that by just saying the UK employs more low-skilled labourers. So all those countries are exposed to China. So there's some kind of separate output gap problem compared to other, say, G7 nations, which is pronounced in the UK It's actually gotten worse since the end of the financial crisis. And I don't know why that is, but again, almost a priori, it doesn't seem that can be China. And you could overcome that 30% difference by doing something. Is it better management, better education, problems with North England? Genuinely, I don't know. But it's a separate issue from the slowdown in the rate of growth for this country. Probably somewhat different solutions. I mean, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I, agree. I,
1: I, I want to flag the fact that at 5 o'clock, Geoffrey West will be giving a presentation. I was having an interesting chat with him yesterday, and he pointed out... He, he's a scaling expert, and he pointed out that in, in all his data, London is an anomaly. So all these other uh, cities he studies... Um, they, they follow very uh, predictable growth rates. And London is the one that um, manages to uh, completely uh, confound the data. So I wonder if there's a connection. So I invite you all to watch his thing. Um, but do this you want to... A a re- well,
2: p- just one more on this really yeah. interesting question, which i just point this out. What I said a minute ago, which was we economists are less sure that there's a link between free trade and higher productivity in the long run. I've noticed that is definitely getting into the mainstream. However, if you look at the Brexit debate, it depends on exactly the opposite conclusion. I mean, the case for Remain said, if we leave the EU, we will have less trade, and less trade means less productivity, and they spelled it out absolutely. So it's still a matter of, I would say, uncertain conclusion.
1: Can I invite some more questions?
0: Hi. Um, curious as to what you think about this theory I have as to one of the causes. Um, we've had these asset bubbles, and they have attracted human capital. So human capital has been misallocated. People have trained for jobs in value-destructive industries. So as a result, the value of human capital has appreciated less than it should have, and maybe even depreciated in many cases. So as a result, we might have an overhang where the labor force, where individuals are not as productive as they would have been had they not gone into value-destructive jobs or industries.
1: Interesting question.
0: I agree with your
3: claim, and I agree with your theory, but I don't think it's driving the productivity crisis. Even if we take away all the misallocated labor, there's just more talent today than ever before. And if we think a few decades back, what chance did women have to contribute? What chance did African Americans have to contribute compared to today? Geniuses from China and India, what chance did they have of making their way to a lab or a startup? That the overall influx of talent, when you think about what a huge positive that has been on net, that actually makes it all the more striking that productivity growth still is down. That, to me, is a big stunner. So I don't think it can mainly be about talent misallocation. I, th- I
2: think that's right, too, but I do have some sympathy with this argument. The BIS has actually been making somewhat similar arguments lately, saying not only did we misallocate labor, but we also misallocated capital into an over-stimulated financial system. And what Claudio Borio says is that every time we get a downturn, we we panic because the downside is so bad that we extend that further in a, in a new bubble and we just don't see where the exit is. Um, and I do think there is something in this misallocation point. And it's got worse since, say, 2005, but it doesn't explain key thing to remember about this productivity stuff is it really started several decades ago. So it may have been made worse lately by some of these more recent things, um, but you've got to explain it over a much longer period, I think.
1: Any more questions?
0: Uh, You you talked about uh, robots earlier, and I I think that there's an assumption that the labour and capital share of value, the balance has shifted more towards capital. I wonder whether um, some of the productivity puzzle could be uh, because of frictions in the labour market where it's actually it's hard to fire people um, and so you have people staying in roles where um, really parts of their job should be replaced with, with capital um, and, but we're retaining that labour unnecessarily because of uh, societal pressures and human institutions sort of favouring uh, an approach that that treats humans well uh, rather than robots.
3: I think there's something to that. I don't think it can be a fundamental cause. I think it's another second-order effect. So in the American data, the rate of turnover, people to jobs, that has slowed down somewhat, and that may well be inefficient. Some of it may be people love their jobs, they don't want to leave, but I suspect a lot of it is a kind of misallocation, lock-in, institutional rigidities, firing aversion, unwillingness to innovate, and it may well be one factor. I don't see it as a driving factor, but it, there's probably something to it.
2: Yeah, I think it's a factor. I mean, inside the current European Union, we have compare France and, and the UK. The UK has a much more um, flexible labor market than France does. France actually has a higher level of productivity per head, product of output per head than we do. But I would argue, Tyler, that we have a faster growth rate. I think the flexibility that we have in our labour market is producing a more rapid growth for the reasons that you've suggested. There may be lots of other reasons why they have a higher level based on education, infrastructure, whatever, in the past.
1: Thank you. Uh, We've got time, I think, for one more question. Uh, Who's keen... Um, just uh, some of the points again made by previous questions, but I put that issue about free trade uh, to a libertarian yesterday to say whether the potential end of scarcity of labour might mean that actually free markets can't, kind of can't be the answer to all, all problems. And he said, well, they should still, uh, unsurprisingly, he said they should still be the answer to all problems. But then as a kind of balancing item, uh, uh, once, you've, once you've expanded the pie as much as you possibly can, by having the freest markets in every area, labour, capital, and everything like that, then you do a, a distributional task, a basic income, something like that, just to ensure that you've always got enough demand uh, to drive, well, to, to drive things forward. So I guess the, the, the question is: is that uh, the potential solution?
2: Um, I think that usually the correct answer is free trade with optimal distribution. If you can't get the optimal distribution because you've got, you know, political impediments to that or whatever, that's the second best situation that you can perhaps conclude that free trade isn't the best solution in that, in that environment. So I think I agree with that
3: person. We all have social welfare states. Putting aside what we should do, I would stress the point that we've all promised so much of the forthcoming social surplus to the elderly already. There's not actually very much, if anything, to redistribute on top of what we're doing now. It may look like there is, and we can pretend for a while there is, but we all have unfavorable demographics. And Brexit probably is a negative shock, and the United States has its fair share of negative shocks. And the idea that we're going to have so much to throw around and redistribute, or even viewed politically... I think that's quite unlikely, and I think the redistribution we have is the redistribution we're going to get, more or less, and we'll make do with that. Given that, I still want free trade, I'm a cosmopolitan, and I think the losses on incomes to the losers in percentage terms are actually quite small when you measure them. I understand those people are nonetheless very upset, but the gains are still much larger than the losses, especially when viewed globally. And I think the structure of interest groups in our governments will maintain some version of free trade, with or without Brexit, with or without T- TPP, whatever else.
1: So, um, I'm afraid we're going to have to finish it off um, on that point. But for now, I'm just going to conclude on the point that Gavin um, started off by saying that it's not really a puzzle, but I was going. To, my reaction to the uh, conversation is that I think it really is still a puzzle. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's the end of my conversation with Gavin and Tyler. Thanks very much for listening. We do hope you enjoyed it. And do let us know what you think of the uh, productivity puzzle because we would be very interested to know. You can record a voice memo on your smartphone and email it to me here on alphachatterbox at ft.com or simply leave a voicemail at plus one that is a American number. Or you can find me on Twitter. I'm on at Iza Kaminska, which is I-Z-A-K-A-M-I-N-S-K-A. This podcast was produced and edited by Amy Keene.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.